best sermon ever. How about that? It's Peter's sermon here, at the first sermon at the church after the birth of the church. And last week we looked at the um, first part of this chapter when we saw the birth story of the New Testament church. There's a little bit of debate about that. Some would say it started earlier. But um, anyway, for the most part, at least a change in identifying the people of God um, and, and, and inaugurated a new era of um, God's redemptive plan. It was initiated by God that the Spirit came, not because they worked it up or prayed enough or sat long enough or believed long enough, but because God had planned it for a certain time and then it inducted the Gentiles into the people of God. This was Peter's first sermon and probably his best. Now, typically first sermons aren't the best, okay? Usually they're the worst. I was actually trying to think of the first time I preached a sermon. And I think you're, you know how there's that psychological thing that you block out bad memories? Like, I couldn't remember. And I'm guessing it was sometime in like a youth group thing on a Wednesday night, but it was probably terrible. And I probably preached some type of heresy. Um, in fact, I actually remember one of the first times I gave a devotional. I, um, uh, one of my favorite preachers at the time was a pretty staunch fundamentalist type. And he said something about women wearing slacks and how every pair of slacks in America ought to be burned. And I didn't even know what that meant, but I said it in youth group. You know, like women shouldn't wear slacks and every pair of slacks ought to be. In fact, I remember going to camp one year and it was the the camp we went to had one. They don't do this anymore, but like this was back in the day. Um, They had one week of the year that was no slacks week. And that was for the churches that didn't believe in women wearing pants or britches. Um, and so we were there that week because we liked the preacher, I guess. And, um, what's bad is it took me till Wednesday to figure out what that meant. I thought that meant they had more games, like no slacks, you know, took the slacks out, you know, and, um, didn't even know what I was talking about. But first sermons are pretty bad. Um, and you stumble over things. And I remember, uh, early on I was in Bible college and I was invited to, um, I was home, and I was invited to go preach a revival service for a little church over in Ripley, West Virginia. And um, I didn't have enough sermons to make the week, and, and I couldn't figure out, I couldn't get one long enough to fill the time. I've overcome that problem. Now I can fill in time pretty well. Um, and, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, Anyway, so I remember preaching, uh, I had two things that I thought, so I just thought, well, I'll just put them both together. And I didn't think anyone caught it, but there was an old fellow who was like, hey, we got two for the price of one today, because I just you know, did two little things back to back. And Anyway, this is the first sermon of at least seven to 11 of them we see it, it, that Peter preaches. It's probably, one of, probably his best, at least in my opinion. But what makes it more amazing is that just 50 days prior to preaching this sermon at Pentecost, Peter is denying Jesus. He's a fallen preacher. Fifty days prior. Jesus restores him. He sees the risen Christ. And it just shows that God can change and use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And and He can use the the worst of types of people to to do His work. Uh, It's not saying that there's not a biblical warrant for character and testing and um, affirming and, uh, and and change of life, but that God used him. Um, but so we saw last week that 
Pentecost comes and, and, and the tongues come, descend, and, and the, the, the gospel's extending to all these boundaries that's even beyond the scope of Rome's rule, all these peoples and languages and groups of people and geographical areas, and they're confused. And so really, his sermon is, is, uh, d- deals with two different interrogative que- interrogatives or questions that he answers. And um, so in, in verse 12, they're confused and they say, what does this mean that these people are speaking in these tongues? Are they drunk? And Peter sees this confusion and answers that confusion with this message here. He answers their confusion by telling them that the end time salvation that had been prophesied by God had now arrived through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus the Messiah. And that they could believe on Him and be saved. And that's what He does. And so the big idea that I want to get at this morning is this. We've been talking about it through this series of Acts. That in Acts you see a church on the move. And so this morning, the big idea is this, that a church on the move is committed to biblical preaching that leads to biblical conversions. So a church on the move is committed to biblical preaching and biblical conversions. Now, I would say that there are a lot of people in lots of different churches all over this town and our community and the state and our country that would say, well, yeah, we're committed to biblical preaching. And often when I hear people say stuff like that, I go back to this movie, this scene in The Princess Bride, when the guy says, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. You know, so people will say, oh, we believe in biblical preaching. And it's like, ah, I think we're going to, if we look at the text, we'll find out that when people say those things or biblical conversion, they don't know, they aren't using it the way the Bible uses it. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at this. And so the first we see that a church on the move is committed to biblical preaching. Now, when you look at Peter's sermon here, uh, it should be obvious for a few things here that um, some, we'll jump in and kind of analyze his sermon. So we're going to be critical of his sermon and kind of look at it. Well, the first thing is the obvious. It is a sermon. Peter preaches. His response to the confusion there, the first day of the church's birth, is preaching. Now, it's a sermon, or at least it's part of a sermon, because in verse 40 you saw there, now, remember, this is part of a sermon. This is Luke giving the gist of Peter's sermon. Okay? Luke's the author of Acts, the the human author. And he's given the gist, or the the summary statement, of... um, Peter's sermon, kind of like a small group leader, just saying, say, hey, we talked about this on Sunday, and now we're going to apply it. He's given them the gist, okay, with sermon-based small groups, maybe, and uh, and so he's so, and then he also gives, he was kind of, he's kind of given the condensed version of it because verse forty he says, and with many other words he bore witness. I don't know if he's getting a little jab in that, and Peter went on and on and on and on and on with this sermon, but he said this, and with many other words he was convincing them and warning them. It's a sermon. And his rhetorical style is actually very similar to the, what the ancients, how the ancients delivered speech. And that's basically you're giving a, the content of the point of the passage in the Bible, but you're wording it in a logical way. And obviously that logical way of presenting stuff follows like a rhetorical style. 
Um, and in our day, things, and those things change. You could look back at sermons of you know, a couple hundred years ago, and they have a little different style. Early on in, la- in the last century, it was considered uncouth or not good to announce points of a sermon. You would outline it almost like in a long essay and just say it. And then probably about in the 60s and 70s, it kind of became cool to say, hey, I got three points in a poem. Point number one, point number two, point number three. And then you see a trend changing even today with how people logically receive um, speeches. But so Peter's talk, sermon, is logically and very similar to how they would give speeches of the day. It's a sermon. But I want you to get here that it was a sermon, that there is a primacy of preaching in the New Testament church. And we see that in Je- through Jesus, through the apostles, and through what they gave in the epistles about what church was to be and one of the primary aspects of it. And the church today tries to employ a ton of different programs and approaches and gimmicks and activities and dramas And the list could go on and secular psychology and management techniques and advertising campaigns and, you know, giveaways and things like that and all those bait and switch things. And and you go on and on and on the things the church uses to try to reach people or grow people. But in the New Testament, it is preaching. And even with all the gimmicks and the things that go on in the programs at churches, when statistics come in and when they actually survey people, why did you pick one church over another? The number one factor by far that everyone picks is what? The hairstyle of the pastor's wife, right? Whether the bathroom smelled well or, or what? No, you know what it is? Preaching, preaching. You can't get away from it. There's nothing new. This is what God's, God's plan. So preaching is a very high and holy calling. Anyone feel up to the job? It is something to tremble beyond. It should be something that wrenches your gut. It is there is something wrong when someone doesn't get nervous to open the holy word of God and share it with God's people. And that's why guys like me need your prayers. And that's why preachers need encouragement from time to time. And they, they give themselves to a holy task. That's why the Bible would even say that they're worthy of um, certain honors and But God has chosen the preached word of God to be the primary vein by which he feeds his church. Now, it's the preached word of God. It's not just preaching. You know, any bumbling idiot can get up and preach. It's the Bible being preached. Biblical preaching is what's important to be done. The Bible would be preached. And John MacArthur, speaking of all the different programs and ideas that the church would employ, he says this, not all of these things may be harmful, Some of them in their proper place may even be helpful. But what has too often been sacrificed in the flurry of activities and programs is the priority of preaching. There's a priority of preaching for the church. And we need to emulate that as a church. And when we come to church, we need to think of that. That there's a priority that comes with that. And Acts, by and large, is in, in a large part, is the recording of the apostles' preaching. Preaching is to remain a central part in the life of the church to this day. Jesus, after the baptism of John the Baptist, began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Paul would say, I didn't come to you with, with a lot of flatteries or the wisdom of men, but I came preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this. And whenever there's been times in history that preaching is waned is often when the church went haywire. 
And whenever you see times in church in history when church preaching was strong, it was often accompanied by awakenings or movements of God or the buildings of certain things. So, for instance, during the Middle Ages, when preaching became something very much um, allegorizing the Bible and not really having a lot of time given to the sermon, but more focused on the Eucharist and the communion tables. And about 500 years ago next month, the Reformation began. And part of the Reformation was recovering not just the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but the primacy, the priority of preaching. We see that in... Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox and the priority they gave to preaching the Bible. Later on, we'd see that heritage continue through the pulpits of the Puritans who really, through their pulpit ministries, built the moral conscience of this country. See that in Whitfield. And although he often preached in open-air settings, his, his entire ministry, he still preached in churches. And there's still the churches where he preached his last sermon up in New England. Those are part of the places to visit on my list. Um, but we even see that today. We see that in the last century and the, the, the influences of, of great preachers and, and how God sparked movements, even in mass evangelism with like D.L. Moody or Billy Graham and his preaching often that God uses, the anointed preaching of the Bible that God uses to feed and grow his, his, uh, his sheep. And so Peter gets up confidently and boldly and preaches. And so I want you to get that. Look at verse 14. He tells him to heed my words. He gets up boldly and confidently. That there should be nothing wrong with... Uh, that we, sometimes we shy away from this, that the pat, preachers are to now supposed to get up and not be the sage on the stage but the guide on the side and, and, and just kind of, well, I want to make a suggestion and consider this. But to get up confidently and say, this is what God says. Here's the explanation. And so that's what Peter does in this here. And he gives kind of an outline of the three ingredients of what biblical preaching would include. It would include explanation, illustration, an application. So first in verses 14 to 21, he gives an explanation as he interprets Joel's prophecy and also the prophecies in, in the Psalms. And he explains that God fulfills this prophecy in verses 22 to 26 in Jesus. That the prophecy of this end time coming of salvation and the Spirit has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he gives an illustration of that. In David, David's life. Hey, David even saw this, and you see this in the Psalms, in Psalm 110, how David's in the grave, but he's still talking about his Lord because he's looking about those kings and those, those ones that would come from his lineage um, through, the, the, through the line of David that would sit on his throne who would be the Messiah. And then in verses 37 to 40, we see that he applies it. He calls them to repentance. So we see in this sermon explanation, illustration, and application. And so Peter's sermon is rooted. I want you to, this is one of the points I want to make. His sermon, biblical preaching, is rooted in the scriptures. That the content, look, I mean, just look at the content of Peter's sermon here. It is based in Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and Psalm 132, 11. That's a lot of Bible. And if anyone was preaching to unchurched people, this is exactly who he's preaching to. The church has just started. None of them were in it. And he goes with Bible. So when they say, we're confused, what does this mean? He says, this is what the Bible says about this. And that's really what we do as, as believers. That's part of our role in the world is to explain the confusion of this world with a biblical worldview. He answers the questions. What does this mean? 
Now, when they said, what does this mean? He, he didn't go sociological or patholo- or psychological and say, well, there's these surveys and some ph- philosophers think this. He just says, the Bible says. And that's really a picture of our role in the church today. For many of you, there are people in your neighborhood, in your office, your workplace, your school, that can't make sense of the craziness and all the things that are going on in this world. Because they don't know the designer of this world. And you are there. God's put you in that place to point them to the book. Here's what God's word says about what's going on. Here's what God... Here's what God's word saying about the issues of, of the day. And here's the answers. It's really what our role is. But it's rooted in the Bible. And I want you to note that he points out that, that he points out that this message of what's going on at Pentecost with the spirit is rooted in ancient faith. He says this isn't new. Peter's uh, Peter is pointing out that this is prophesied years earlier, centuries earlier through Joel. And it's now coming back. He's saying that this. This church that's being birthed is not some new religion, but it's a new aspect of the promises of God in these last days. That God is faithful to keep His promises. He was promised by God and is here in these last days. So I want you to think, is it okay that what we're doing here is not new? Sometimes I wonder if some Christians are okay with that, that, that we're doing old things. That... And every so many years, there's often a group of Christians that think they have some new expression or new corner of what Christianity is or how it's supposed to look like. That Peter comes and says, this is not new, this is old. And as I've said, when we try something new to us or things like that, that I am not a young new pastor with a lot of fresh ideas. I am an ambassador from your great, 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 great grandparents in the faith. And so I'm just going to, let's do what grandpa said to do. Um, I mean, obviously... He didn't have cars or things like that. Or there's, there's obviously a modern contextualization of, of that. But the same thing, preaching the same faith. And so um, I could say very much, give me that old time religion. And so you'd say, I want something new and fresh. And we would say, no, we'll take the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Thank you very much. And we'll just continue on doing what we've been doing for 2000 years. Preaching the Bible, singing the Bible, believing the Bible, and living the Bible. Now, so this, so this, so this sermon is rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in an ancient faith, but it's also very countercultural. And biblical preaching for Peter and for us has always and will always be countercultural. It's never going to fit in. It's not going to be accepted. So look at verse seventeen, if you would. It says there that. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. What he is saying is that this promise, this gospel invitation, and the, the, the spirit and the giftings and the promise here is for all, all flesh. And that includes, regardless of gender, that your sons and your daughters will see this and prophesy. 
It's not just for one gender or another. Regardless of age, it says the young men. The old men will dream dreams. The young men will see visions, that, or vice versa. That, that, um, that, that regardless of age, young, old, and regardless of social status, is even my male servants and female servants. Now, think, this time in history, women and servants were overlooked in culture. But the coming of the age of the church, this age of grace, this outpouring of the Spirit, elevates them all. Regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of uh, age, regardless of social status, it's open to all flesh. And it's also supernatural. And it says in verse 19, And I will show you wonders in the heavens and the signs in the earth and the and below and blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood and and before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. Now, obviously Paul or Peter here um, is seeing some type of fulfillment of this prophecy at present. And there probably is still some of this yet to come of this day of the Lord as he inaugurates these last days and there, I think there actually is. But at least there's some partial fulfillment here of this that happens here. It is followed by supernatural apocalyptic signs. Now there are some that would see this as figurative or some would see it literal or only at the crucifixion. But the Spirit comes, coming marks an inauguration of the end times. That we are in the last days. The end times started here at Pentecost. So this preaching was biblical preaching that was rooted in the scriptures, rooted in an ancient faith. It was countercultural, And it's focused on Jesus. In verse 21 it says, And it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes on and he, makes, and, and he explains it to them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as yourselves also. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, so it's focused on Jesus. This preaching is. So he says at the end of at the end of this sermon about Joel's prophecy. Joel says here in verse twenty one. It's everyone who calls the name of the Lord. Now that Lord there was the Yahweh. And Peter makes immediate application that that is referring to Jesus. So you know what that means? Peter is affirming the deity of Christ. Yahweh of Joel, Jesus of now, Jesus is Lord. This was so countercultural. Think about this. He's talking to these, these, these folks in the city of Jerusalem and talking about how men and women and young and old and, 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 that, and this, is, this is so upsetting to both the Romans and the Jews in the, in the crowd. You think, to a Jew, here always will the Lord our God is one Lord. And so their view of monotheism was that God is one. So to refer to this Son of God as being the God was blasphemy. That you, not understanding that God was one expressed in three persons. 
One in essence, three in persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so this is blasphemy to a Jew. But it's also blasphemy to the Romans. Because the Romans believe that Caesar is Lord. So when he says Jesus is Lord, it's like showing up in Nazi Germany and saying Jesus is Fuhrer. Jesus is Lord? Like, this is astounding here. It's focused on Jesus. And that Jesus will save whoever, everyone who calls, whosoever, whoever will call, he will save. That you don't have to become a proselyte. Remember back in verse 10 uh, when, when they were um, talking about all the different groups that heard in their own languages? One was the proselytes. Because before that, that's how you had to come into knowing the one true God was to become a proselyte. And now you don't have to do that. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, he'll save. It's an incredible, incredible thought. And, it's, and, and it says here that this Jesus is attested. These miracles are evidence. And there's three, a couple of different ways that that word, a Nazareth, a man attested to you or affirmed to you or uh, other, other versions would say attested or affirmed. or uh, I actually like how the NIV puts it in this way. It says accredited. It kind of gives a seal of approval. Accredited by God to, by, with these miracles. Evidence that these miracles, that, God, that Jesus is God's Messiah and the agent of God's salvation. And then verse 24, this, this resurrection was the vindication of Jesus. And then he gives this illustration about David. How David predicted in Psalm 110, Jesus' resurrection. Here we see that in verses 25 to 31. And then even in the exaltation of Jesus, in his ascension, in verses 33 to 36. And so this sermon is focused on the Bible, focused on Jesus and countercultural. And this message is to you that God has made a way of salvation to not come through a particular people, but for anyone. And that this is a promise. This is not new. This is something that's rooted in the, God's plan, the foreknowledge of God, the determined purpose of God from the beginning. And whoever, it's open to you. God is offering it. God has kept His promises. Fulfill His Word. And He offers this gift to you. And so this brings, Peter preaches for a verdict here. It brings, he moves them to a call. And so they ask, what must we do? Verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter again responds and he says, and Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost Spirit. Peter's message moves to a call to them that God's kept his promises, that the Spirit's for all of you, that Jesus saves all who will repent. But the goal was conversion. By a biblical church, a church on the move is committed to biblical preaching that leads to biblical conversions. Conversions. Are you converted? Not have you prayed? Have you walked? Have you signed? Have you been converted? And so, the goal is conversions. You know, the goal of our church ought to be to win people to the Lord. To go into all the world and make disciples. 
Um, did I misspell something? I'm sorry. Um, so, um, okay. So, did I? No. Okay. It must be in the notes, right? Never mind. Okay. I got a text that I misspelled something. Okay. Um, squirrel. Okay. Let's get back on track. Okay. So the goals, conversions. You know, we want, we want to be a church that sees con- people converted. We want to see we're go, to go into all the world. And you know, evangelism and discipleship are one and the same. Uh, Jesus said to go in all the world and make disciples. That, that that you go you initially make disciples through evangelism, but you don't just you don't just stillbirth. You don't just bring people, bring babies into the world and not help them. That there's a, a, it's a process. Evangelism and discipleship can't be separated. That they're, they're two sides of the same coin. That they're together here, and we're to go make disciples. So these conversions is the goal. You know, it's often been said that that it churches that and a lot of pastors have been repeating this because it was based on some studies a, a couple decades ago that 80% of churches are either declining or plateaued or not growing as fast as the neighborhood around them. Have you heard that statistic? Okay. Well, the, the, uh, a month or so ago, they, they actually re- released this other huge study that was with Lifeway and Ligonier, and they did all these studies, and they actually found that it, things seemed to, on one level of the metrics, and you can look up all the stuff about the, the, the point of um, the, the percent of error and all the stuff with this, all these people that are math heads, that the stats and what they did with the stats and the uh, probabilities and all that stuff. They have all that stuff out there too. But they actually found that, that uh, it looks positive that 30% of churches in America are actually growing. But the problem was is that hardly any of them fractions of percents of the churches in America that are growing are growing by conversions. The rest that are growing are growing from transfer. So we're not making new sheep. We're just shuffling the sheep from one barn to another. And, you know, we could probably look around our our area and there's different times and different churches that were big or which ones are small or which ones are growing, which ones are not. And if, honestly, if you went in and asked the people, what brought you here? A lot of them would be they came from another church to that because this, you know, maybe they like this better or got along with this better or whatever that might be. But let me say this. If you're visiting with us from another congregation today, that you're welcome and that I understand that there are some legitimate biblical reasons why God moves some people from one congregation to another. But the one thing that we do in our membership interviews here, and when someone's coming from another church, is I always ask if they have any unresolved conflict at the church they're coming from. If it's a, if it's a New Testament church. And I often even contact one of the pastors or elders at that church to check that all is well. Um, do you know how many times I've had that done in return? Um, but um, I also want to, so I say that if you're visiting and considering a transfer, but I also want to say to our folks that we want to see Emmanuel grow through conversions, not through transfers. And I'm happy for transfers. But, you know, there are some churches that are growing that they've almost like tricked themselves because they're growing that they haven't won anyone to Jesus. They just attracted people from... And, they, and some churches even market themselves that way to attract people from other churches. That we're here to produce biblical converts. 
That's what we're here for. So I, mean, I would, I wanted to, I'd rather have one person, like we had a testimony of someone that came to know the Lord last Sunday. Um, Shannon gave her testimony about coming to know the Lord through our ministry here. I would rather have one of those for every 10 groups that come and transfer growth. That's where it's at. And now we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? That we want to grow through conversions. Because conversion involves repentance and faith. And so I want to look at this and say that in verse 38 here, Acts 2.38, and Peter said, repent. What's involved in biblical conversion? He says here, repent, repentance and baptism. In fact, um, I've actually heard that there was an old lady that this verse is actually good for um, protecting your home. That you can actually protect your home with Acts, with this verse in Acts. And uh, there was a, an old lady that someone broke in her house, a burglar broke into her house, and um, and uh, and the, as the, as the intruder was leaving, she said, "Stop! Acts two thirty eight. Repent and be baptized. You'll be saved." And the guy stopped dead in his tracks and didn't move until the police got there. And they took her story and they took his story and the cops are like, hey buddy, this old lady, she's just quoted Bible verses at you. What made you stop and wait and, and, and not go anywhere? And he said, because she, had, she said she had an axe in 238s. All right. Peter says here, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is important for us that faith and repentance go together. And often when you, we're going to look at a few errors when people look at one of the biggest errors that people do when interpreting the Bible is by not letting the Bible interpret the bible not comparing scripture with scripture and taking certain passages not necessarily out of their context but out of the context of other passages of the bible and seeing how they fit together or maybe systematizing them in a certain way and you can get a lot of trouble with that way and one of the ways people do that is they'd say well it's just repentance and not faith or other places that say it's just faith and not repentance but you often see them in the bible together repentance and faith and someone said they're two sides of the same coin. And so they're so often together that when one is there, you assume the other one's there. Or that one produces the other, as Calvin would say. Or that, um, and D.A. Carson actually says this, he says, both are shorthand expressions that imply the other. So when it says repent, there's an implication that there's repentance and faith. Faith is often mentioned without repentance as well as repentance not mentioned without faith. And then there is the evidence of this conversion in baptism now this does not mean that the waters save we're saved by grace through faith and the scriptures are clear in other passages that it's in fact paul even said that when i came to you i didn't come baptizing i didn't come to baptize i came to preach the gospel that other elders were there to do the baptisms so if if baptism was part of it why would paul say that um yet so even though g even though Baptism is not part of salvation. Jesus commands that baptism be an outward expression of what the Spirit of God has accomplished in the person. It is a display of one's repentance. Being willing to, willing to publicly yield your allegiances to Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. 
And so there are three errors that emerge from seeing baptism as not seeing baptism as the visible sign of salvation. So I'm going to say baptism is the visible sign of salvation. And they believed the visible expression was baptism. And there are three errors that come by seeing not seeing baptism as the visible sign of repentance and faith. That's why it's important to compare Scripture to Scripture. So some groups would teach that baptism is essential to salvation. And, and most notably, the follower, the Campbellites, or what we today is the Church of Christ, are holding to some type of baptismal regeneration. The Robinson family and Duck Dynasty are, um, would be a, a very popular, noted version of, of this error. Um, good people, wonderful things, a lot of wholesome things, but believing that baptism is integral to salvation is, is not what the text says. Paul made this distinction. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he says the, the gospel is the message of the cross. So that's an error of seeing the not comparing this. Another is the, the oneness Pentecostals, or what we would see in the apostolic churches, they call themselves today, that would believe that God is one person that manifests himself or morphs in different modes of three different modes of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Believe, baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They only focus on that. Not thinking about Matthew where he says, be baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Singular name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a Trinitarian mode to baptism. So this is the, an ancient heresy that was actually condemned in the 200s called modalism. They would hold to that. But then there's a... And those are two errors of not seeing baptism as the visible sign of salvation. But then there's one more that it probably gets a little closer to home and and, and, um, and my car might have some tomatoes squashed on it after this, but... For centuries in the church, the visible sign of someone believing on Jesus Christ and being a convert was baptism. And that's how churches, particularly that have the type, denominational tag that we do, measured their growth by how many baptisms they had. And they even debate this today, whether they should use that metric or not. And I'm actually so glad that Baptist conventions do that. They measure by baptisms. Because that is the visible sign of someone becoming a convert to Jesus Christ. But in, one, in the awakenings of this century and the, the awakenings throughout time, the gospel was preached and conversions were measured by baptism. In fact, when George Whitfield would preach, this was how they'd measure their certain things. But in the late 1800s or the mid to late 1800s, there emerged an idea that sought to create re- revival with what was known as new measures. That God gave certain means of grace, the means of preaching, the means these means by which he would grow a church. And, and there was these ideas of these new measures. And much of the worship services that we have is often from this thing. And there was this is probably known best by this guy named Charles Finney, who taught that man needed to be converted not from his nature, but from his will. So you know that you are a sinner by birth and by choice, that you are a sinner. And, and, and so you're, you need to be saved from your sin nature. And he would say, no, 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 the only key thing is keeping people from being saved is their will to not want to be saved. And so if we can just put them in a room and manipulate them long enough and play just as I am with enough verses, they'll eventually get to where they want to believe and, and, and come to, 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 to believe on Jesus. This was a, and, and to do that, to work that up emotionally, and pressure them and scare them into it, you had to come up with some new measures. 
And some, not all of these are bad, mind you. Some of them are just natural and some things we do that I don't even have a problem with. But there's a philosophy that comes with them. That it believed that revival wasn't a miracle that God did. It was something that we uh, psychologically or f- through things worked up. And one of those new measures that he introduced there in the mid to late 1800s, mind you, 1800 years of the church, they didn't do this, was what he called the anxious bench or the mourner's bench or what we might call the altar call. Now, it doesn't mean preachers didn't preach for a verdict. In fact, uh, George Whitfield would would end his sermons with wanting people to believe and pray and make a decision. That is awesome. But when you get people in a room and you hold them at an altar and you manipulate them and work them long enough until they make a decision, we want God to birth people. Now, we want to be there and help, but when we lead someone to the Lord, we're really being a midwife because they're born from above. God does the saving, not because I can. And you know what that does? It takes so much pressure off of me as the evangelist, as the person telling the gospel. Because, you know, there's been times I've shared the gospel and I thought, oh, I missed this point. Or if I would have told this story, they would have believed. Oh, if I would, oh, I forgot to quote that verse, right? And I forgot the end. I forgot the reference to that. It doesn't mean you need to be weak, but you need to realize that God uses the gospel. And if he can use Balaam's mule, he can use you. That God saves. And so, the problem, and, and, and we still do that with an invitation or something like that. And I, and, and I believe in it. And I think it's fine. But the problem was how you measured people getting saved. Because in the New Testament, the visible sign that someone believed on Jesus Christ was baptism. It wasn't whether they walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or raised their hand or filled out a card. It was whether they entered the waters of baptism. Now, those other things might lead up to it, and they're fine tools, but we measure this by baptisms. And so we preach for a verdict, and we go to this. So, And then it says that they believe, those that believed were baptized, and they were added to the church. In verse 41, and it uses the passive verse. So who added them to the church? Well, verse 47, and we're looking on next week's time, uh, answers that the Lord added to the church. Because it was Jesus who promised in Matthew sixteen eighteen that I will build my church. And so, a New Testament church that's on the move is going to be given to biblical preaching and biblical conversions. That faith, that repentance is part of this. That repentance is this change of mind that results in a change of action. That it's, a, I don't want my sin, I want God's Son. And part of me turning and believing on Jesus is, is that I'm willing to, and it might take me a lifetime to get rid of some of these sins, but that I'm turning the corner, that I'm making a turn towards Jesus and away from my sin. That I'm not wanting Jesus just to, to, to baptize my sins and I'll just have life insurance and continue sinning, but that I'm turning to Him and making Jesus Christ my Lord. When I believe on Him and I'm converted and believe on Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And there is a whole generation of people that sit in pews that are not converted. Charles Chuck Swindoll tells a story of after he was doing a wedding at his church that a lady came up to him and she was the wife of one of the leaders in the church. And she said to him, My husband and I have been down at the beach for the past week and my husband has walked the beach for hours in the greatest of agony. And after several days, he finally came in and threw himself down on the couch and wept for three hours. And then he asked Christ into his heart. 
I wonder if there's someone here like that today. I'm reading this book called From Embers to Flames about how God can revitalize a church. And the author tells the story about how he went to this church in, um, in Florida and preached a message about how salvation is personal, conversion is individuals need to be converted. And um, this is his first sermon there. And then they had the time that they had the response time. And they were waiting on the organist. And she didn't show up. And he's like, come on, doesn't she know she's supposed to get up there? And she was praying and asking Christ to come come, come into her life and believe on Christ because she'd never been converted. And after the sermon, one of the deacons caught him, almost mad at him. He said, well, hey, what was going on with, with, some, with, with the organist? What was going on with her at, at the end of the sermon? And he said, well... And he's like, well, all right, I'm just going to give it to him. This guy's mad at me already. And he said, well, she was believing on Jesus Christ to save her from her sins. And he says, I thought so, and I need to too. And he was one of the deacons there. There may be some like that here. And some who have been around church for many years but never truly been converted. And so I want to ask you today, would you give up whatever that struggle, whatever that doubt, whatever that pride that's keeping you from trusting Christ? And you might say, well, hey, I've not been in church, but I'm, I'm so far away from God, God could not save me. So I want you to look at verse 39. This promise that it's to all, he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That there is no one who is so far removed from God that he can't redeem them. Don't give up on praying for an unsaved loved one. He, this promise is for all who are afar off. And so, a church on the move is committed to biblical preaching. So, how can you be committed to biblical preaching? You, you, can, you can learn to listen to it and like it. It's an acquired taste. It's like, you know, I hated coffee. Didn't like coffee. Didn't like the smell of it. Until I started dating this girl from New Jersey. And I'd stay with her aunt, or aunt as they would say, and I would stay with her aunt, and I'd walk in and she'd say, you want some coffee? And it was like, that was the only thing there. And I was like, I got to fit into this thing. So I started drinking coffee. And you know what I like now? I like good coffee. And, and I'm not as much a coffee snob as she is, but, but I like it. And it took a while. And to listening to biblical preaching is an acquired taste. And to listen, like, like when we want to give the Bible is the way the Bible is, to listen with what's the text say? That you're actually thinking about that. You're preparing yourself for it. To listen with application. What's God doing here? To support a church that promotes it. This is one of the reasons why we promote biblical preaching and giving ourselves to it. But then we want to be a, a, a church that is given to biblical conversion and seeing people saved. And so we want to be a church on the move. It's given to biblical preaching and biblical conversions. We're going to respond now. I have a song of response. A time to respond and it's a time for you to pray and respond. It's also a time for you to, maybe someone might need help in their responding. Maybe, um, or you want to share a testimony of how God's working in your responding, what God's doing in your life, maybe how you came to know the Lord. And so at this time, we're going to pray and then sing. But this is a time to maybe let it be known that you need to be baptized or maybe that you want to join this church or maybe you'd like to talk to someone about being saved or even how God has used preaching and teaching on biblical conversion to save you. And so let's pray and then we'll sing together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for biblical preaching. 
biblical, that leads to biblical conversions. Thank you for this promise that this gift of the Spirit is to everyone. It's so countercultural. And that all who are far off, no matter what gender, age, social status, how far away we are from God, whoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and that you'll save them. We thank you for this promise in Jesus' name. Amen. 393. Let's stand together as we sing and respond. 393. If you need to respond, if you want to pray down here, if you want to pray in your seat, if you want to let something be known, this is the time. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my toys and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take